I am so excited to get into this book with you guys. I have a hard time um, being honest, okay? I lie. I think every book we've gone through as a church, I tell you guys it's my favorite book. Like, honestly, <laughs> stuff. We're going through, we're, we're putting some of the old teachings from over a decade together. Uh, we're calling it, what are we calling it, David? Retro rewind okay and it's so cool because we're going through and we're you know downloading some of those old videos and i'm finding these clips where i'm saying hey galatians is my favorite book (laughs) it's just like oh boy i thought it was ephesians because that was the next one but i'm really convinced it's probably exodus and next week it's going to be corinthians but this morning the word of god here in exodus especially chapter one i think chapter one's the best chapter in the whole book is the best that we have So our plot, guys, and I want you to look up here on the screen, really, Exodus is showcasing God's glory in the story of deliverance. Do you guys see why this is my favorite book? It doesn't get better than this, because this is our God. He delivers. So, chapter 1, the deliverer isn't a guy named Moses, by the way. I love this chapter. And again, we're dusting off this old book. Why? Because there's much in it for us today. That's the thing that's cool about the Word of God. It is alive. It is living. It is powerful. It is relevant. 2,000 years, well, 3,500 years later, it's still speaking to us. What other book does that, guys? There isn't one because it's not the Word of God. And if the Lord tarries another 3,500 years, guess what? It's still going to be relevant in speaking to people. That's what the Word of God does, and that's what we get to do this morning. So we want to know our God, right? We got to read through Psalm 66 this morning. Isn't that what that psalm was all about? Getting to know God. Come and see what God has done. We read there in Psalm 66.5. Come and see. And that's the blessing of being able to gather together and get into his word. Look at God's faithfulness, what he has done. That's why I loved a couple weeks ago when we shared at the end of service together. Look at God's faithfulness. Look what he's doing in our lives, that testimony, praising him for what he's up to. Didn't that build your faith up? Whoa, God's doing it in their life. They can do it in my life. It's good to share those testimonies. And I want us to have God's stories of deliverance. Okay, I was convicted yesterday. Next year, men, no regrets retreat. You got to go. Okay, I've been going for years. God speaks. He shows up every year, downloads things in the heart. I got to catch one sermon because I taught three other ones yesterday. So I got to catch the last one together. And it was so cool because his brother who was called in last minute to fill in for somebody who couldn't make it, God had given him a word on this guy, Ananias. And you guys know Ananias there in Acts chapter 9. Yes, Lord. God spoke to him. He just said, yes, Lord. And it was so cool because in preparation this week for Exodus chapter 1, that had been my prayer coming around this sermon. It concludes with, yes, Lord. And I'm like, whoa, God, you're speaking. That is absolute confirmation to where we're going and what we're doing. God's always speaking. So position yourself. Make it a priority to get to a men's conference, to the women's retreats, to times of prayer together. We show up and God speaks. That's what I love about Sunday mornings. Have you guys been to a Sunday morning recently where God hasn't spoken to you? Yeah. But it's because we made that a priority. Okay, so... God, we want to know him more. 
Um, because we get to know his nature. We get to know what he's up to, right? We also want to know the gospel better. So it's really a model of redemption for us as we get into Exodus. We see the gospel really clearly. We also want to see and know our mission better. Do you guys all know that you're on a mission from God? Okay? You guys ever see that Blues Brothers movie? We're on a mission from God. <laughs> it's so rad. That's the reality for the Christian. We are all on a mission, but we all could be doing that mission better. Okay? Learning how to do it better. And that's part of what the church is to do. And that's what God's word does for us. It effectively works in those who believe. And as we take God's word seriously, we're not just hearing it, but we're actually going to end up doing it. And the church is called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what our little biddies are doing this morning with their childlike faith. They're being equipped. Do you guys know that God has plans for each and every one of them? Okay? He has a plan for our kids, for our youth. You guys are going to be here sharing the word of God with our young people tonight. Man, they're being equipped for the work, the mission that God has for them. And you and I are doing the same this morning. Man, our prayer time before service today, man, it just concluded. AJ was praying, just say, God, stir up our fellowship. You know, I love it. That's what we get to do when we come together. Don't you guys get stirred up by one another? Yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's why we're not to forsake the assembling together. So let's do that, that we can do our mission better, and we're going to see that played out in the book of Exodus. We also want to know how to deal with practical issues in our lives, how to live life today. Well, guys, you know, we're going to see that this morning, very practical things right here in chapter 1, taking care of on the unborn, okay? We're going to look at race issues, murder, how God uses and works through ordinary people in a real community, relying upon God, leadership, there's delegation, obeying God's word, idolatry. Yeah, that's all here just in chapter one. And if I get to it, we'll actually get into it. But one more overview real quick. Exodus' main point, and I don't want us to miss this. I'm going to share this over and over with you guys as we go through this book. Okay, The main point of Exodus is we are saved to glorify God, Okay, which means worshiping him the way he desires to be worshiped. So Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. And we'll get there some year in chapter 40, <laughs> verses 34 and 35. So the reason God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh why he is bringing them out of Egypt is to worship him his way. That is the whole point. Brothers and sisters, we've been called out of this world. We are set apart. Why? To worship him the way he wants to be worshiped. And doesn't he desire, like, deserve to be worshipped with our lives? That we are walking uprightly according to his ways and ways that please him? Yeah, but we got to get in his word to know what's right. That we can get it right and then we can live it right. So, be fruitful and multiply, right? We're going to jump into chapter 1, but we're not getting there quite yet because we actually have to go back to Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter. Just turn one page in your Bible back. Okay, we're going to pick it up in verse 22. In Genesis 50, 22, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years, old dude, 
Oh, Lord, don't let me live that long. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Machar, the son of Manasseh. They were also brought on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath. From the children of Israel, saying, "God, will my bone or <clears throat> will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here." So Joseph died, being one hundred and ten years old. Lord, don't let me live that long. And they embalmed him, and he was put in the coffin in Egypt. Now, flip the page, Exodus one one. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came out of Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben and his household came with, or sorry, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was already, where? In Egypt. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Exodus, and this is so cool, and this is why it's fun to jump into the original text. In the Hebrew, guys, the first word in Exodus is and. You don't start a sentence with and, by the way. I'm married to an English teacher. ben Israel. Thus, what is it telling us? It's tying these stories together. And isn't it so cool? We just spent the last year going through Genesis. And now the continuation of the story. God's not done. He still has a lot to do. There's still the promised land to enter into. And we're going to see so much more. So I want you guys to remember, it was a good thing for the children of Israel to be in Egypt. Okay? There was a position of privilege during the famine. There was provisions made during Joseph's life. Now at the end of that 430 years that they were there, slavery. But it was at the end of their time. So the irony is that eventually the families of the men who sold their brother into slavery end up in slavery themselves, toiling under this hot sun, you know, obeying Pharaoh. So let's take a look at verse 8. Now, though there arose a new king over Egypt, did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel, they're more and they are mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they shall also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up. Out of the land. Therefore, they set these taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens. And they built to her Pharaoh supply cities, Pithem and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. I want to pause real quick. Have any of you guys experienced this in your life? The more affliction, the more hardship, the more trials you go through. I grow. Go figure. Man, rejoice. Count it all joy 
when you fall into various trials. Man, we grow. We don't like it, but we grow. God's ways are our ways, but his ways work. So, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. Verse 13, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter and hard bondage and mortar and brick and all matter of service in the field. All their service in which they made, they <coughs> made them serve with rigor. So the situation had changed, hasn't it, <laughs> right? The new dynasty, you know, has come into power here. In with the new, out with the old, you know, and in power politics, it's all about who you know. In this new pharaoh, didn't know Joseph. Did you guys catch that? Didn't know who he was. Didn't know what he did. So, not like the old pharaoh that knew Joe back in Genesis 41, 38. So the Egyptians started fearing the Israelites, then hating them, wanting to subjugate them. And this is a part of Exodus, okay? Really is about Satan's opposition to God's plan and promises for his people. And I want us to catch that and see that as we study through this. So from it, we're going to learn how to remain faithful to God in times of tribulation. And I don't know about you guys, we all go through times of tribulation. Well, I want to learn how to navigate, how to get through that, how to work through all of it God's way. Because I know his way works. A lot of times we try our way, and it doesn't work too hard, does it? So, verses 8 to 10, I hear fear. There's insecurity, maybe paranoia in this new leader who thought he had a problem, you know? And that's a problem with a lot of dictators, right? Oh, boy, those people, they're going to be trouble for me. So they threatened to dis, you know, <clears throat> stabilize the entire governance. Some have described you know, this as thin skin of reason wrapped around a lie, right? So blaming things on ethnic minorities is always a convenient, you know, convenient because of racism. It's a part of really the sinful nature of man. And we see that playing out not just here, but all over the world throughout history. So this is what made it so easy for Hitler to promote this anti-Semitism of Nazi Germany. It's why the Afro-Anners are able to, you know, the, the black threat, okay? Um, such an argument going on over the things in South Africa in this new wave of immigrant, you know, immigrants, you know, that are coming towards, you know, well, actually all over the world. We have Afghanistan recently. Um, we have waves of immigrants from all over the world trying to make it in America. And why not? Do you guys know that you're blessed? Who wouldn't want to live here? Okay, we are free, we are blessed. Um, but anyways, we see it all the way back here, how many thousands of years, same problem going on. So playing the race car worked for uh, Pharaoh too. His advisors were only too willing to agree that something had to be done about those Israelites. So the new policy, okay, simultaneously solved Egypt's immigration problem and their labor problem and if you catch verse 10 up here with me let us deal shrewdly with them that's what pharaoh said that's what's going to work that's what will get them to you know uh, subject to us so pharaoh unwittingly becomes an obstacle to the covenant of god's promises to israel and then if you look at verse 11 he says afflict them with heavy burdens 
So the servitude described moves from domestic slavery, as in the case with you know, Joseph leading Egypt, Genesis 39, first five verses, now do this harsh oppression. And they built store cities, we're told. So the Hebrews were believed to have produced the building materials. Maybe only few uh, were workings on actual projects in that day. Some real quick side facts. The Israelites did not build the pyramids. Can I say that again? Okay. The Israelites did not build the pyramids. They were built before they ever came into the land of Egypt. Okay. Um, so also organized groups of skilled workers, okay, not slaves. They built the temples. It's fun looking into the pyramids, the temples of the day. Verses 13 and 14, there's a inter- uh, very interesting literary feature here of Exodus. Uh, significant words often are grouped in sevens, okay? And if you look at verse seven, it happens also. So here, guys, each of the seven different Hebrew words were another crack in this slave driver's whip, okay? <laughs> um, yet Pharaoh was actually striking blow after blow against the God of Israel, because ultimately this was a spiritual conflict. Spiritually. So Pharaoh was fighting against God by resenting his people. The world, though they deny God, they fight against God, and they're going to resent God by what? You Christians. Okay? And it's crazy. It's specifically God's people. I mean, look at it. Who's Satan, the great Satan, in the eyes of most of the world? Israel. <laughs> you Christian nation, America. <laughs> What's up with that? That's Satan. You guys know that there are big picture things going on? That there's a spiritual realm going on? Do you know Satan's very much alive and at work today? Things haven't changed a whole lot. So, Pharaoh tried to prevent them from fulfilling their calling, really to work and to play and enjoy what God has given them. Do you guys know that's what God has for us in life? Chief end of man is what? To enjoy God, right? Enjoy him. Enjoy life. He's given us things to enjoy. But here, this is what Satan wants to do. He wants to rip us off. So Satan likes nothing better than to torment God's people. He used Pharaoh to persecute the Israelites for their faith. It's very important to remember how, you know, how much they suffered and how much they learned from their suffering. And that's something I want us to catch as we study through Exodus. Also, a side note in verse 10 here, guys. Pharaoh says, pen yerb, okay, which means lest they multiply. But in verse 12, and this is really cool, God says, ken yerb the more they shall multiply. So the Bible uses this Hebrew pun, and it's kind of cool to think about. It really shows the jokes on Pharaoh, okay, who had always prided himself in being, you know, politically astute. So Pharaoh wasn't a rebel without a cause. He was a rebel without a clue, okay? Guy's clueless. Also, if God left them there in Egypt, they would have been Egyptian. Sinized, if that's a word, <laughs> melted into their race. Their identity of God's special people would have been lost. And it's so cool because how long have they been here thus far? 430 years. And they still have their identity. 
no intermarrying. They still had faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So to a large degree, guys, they began to adopt the superstitions and idolatries and iniquities of Egypt. And these things really, you know, clung to them. Even though they were God's people set apart, you know, they were beginning to be influenced by the Egyptians. Often like us as Christians, we're set apart for God. But aren't we influenced by the things of the world? Okay? Don't they cling to us sometimes? Got a little too close? So... It would have been, guys, uh, bad enough to be political slaves, verses 8 and 9, but they could not, they didn't get to vote like we get to vote, okay? They had no say, they had no rights whatsoever. They were immigrants, refugees, ethnic minorities without zero political power. They had nothing. So immigration, it seems everyone wants to help a few of them but Moses don't want to help a whole bunch of those people in their own backyard. But on the political slavery, they were economic slaves, verse 11. And ultimately, they were given the land, but it hadn't happened yet. For now, it had just, you know, <laughs> been being worked to death. That's all they were doing. They were slaves working. So on top of this political and economic slavery, there were, they were so, social slaves, as we see here now in verses 15 to 22. Now enters, you know, this state-sponsored genocide. Let's catch what happens here. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Sifra, and the name of the other, Pua, and he said to them, when you do the duties of a midwife, for the Hebrew women, you see them on the birth stools. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But I love verse 17. The midwives feared who? God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but save the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And save the male children alive. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're lively, and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided houses or households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So pro-life resistance here, guys. From slavery to slaughter. I love this. Shifra, her name means beautiful. And Pua, you think that would mean something bad? It actually means fragrance or flower, right? So these two gals, they dedicated their lives to this medical care. These are the original Florence Nightingales, okay? And their goal was to preserve and to protect life. Human life is only sacred because God originated it. That's the only reason. And he's the one who sustains it. He's the one who stamped his image upon it. And he has given a plan to it. 
And there's only a sanctity of life if there is a God. If God is pulled out of the equation or never even placed into it, the non-theistic stance cannot start, go towards, or end with sanctity of life idea because there's no reason to think life is sacred. So sanctity, sacred, right? To be consecrated to or belonging to a god or a deity. So whether the sacred beetle of Egypt or the sacred cow in India, for something to be deemed sacred, there must be a deity involved. So three reasons why unborn are so important. They are living, they are human, and they are beings. That's why they're important, guys. The state, living, it's the state of existing. We know an unborn child exists. I mean, we can look at these 4D ultrasounds, okay? There's a living person in the womb. Human, okay? That's of a characteristic of a person or persons, such as people. We have DNA, unique, just for you, okay? Personal. So shown to us, guys, that a child is fully human. You know, at conception, the whole genetic code, it's there. Everything a human being needs <laughs> is there. And then being, that's an individual human person, especially distinguished from a thing of a lower animal, allowed to grow to full term. There is not a possibility that, hey, a dog or a cat came out instead. No, it's always a human being, okay? Honey, we're going to have a human. Yeah. So they're thus living human persons. You guys understand? A person's a person no matter how small. I'm actually pro-choice. I believe that the unborn child has the right to choose. The problem is a recent survey suggested that most people who favor abortion have already been born. The slogans have changed, haven't they, guys? But the sin remains the same. The sin then, the sin today, right now in our own backyard. Whether it's Adolf Hitler and the final solution, eliminating the Jews, or in China and it's one family, one child policy, or the abortion rights movement here in the West, or Pharaoh's male slaughter. Opposition to life is, it always flies in the face of the creator. Always. Choose life. I love this scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So back to Exodus 1. We see in verse 17, guys, the Hebrew midwives here, they were motivated by their loyalty to 
God in a sense of moral righteousness, righteousness here, guys, really derived from their faith in Yahweh. Do you guys know that our faith dictates how we think and how we live? God, you are right. That's why it's often hard for us as Christians to jump on some party line. Because God says this, and they want to do that. That's why I encourage you guys to vote your values. And what does God value? One of those things is life. Choose life as a command. Let's talk about a lie for a second. A great deal of ink has been spilt over this verse about these midwives lying to Pharaoh, right? Read a lot of commentators this week, you know, and they're trying to take these midwives to task for telling a lie. But it tells us here God dealt well with these midwives. So think about it. If what these ladies said was literally true, that they are vigorous, okay, they, they have their babies before we get there, then why would the Hebrew women even need midwives, right? And I think this is one of these places that we really need to understand, you know, there's times where Bible requires us to have a sense of humor, speaking tongue-in-cheek. The midwives, they're really making sport of Pharaoh, I think, here. Okay, by suggesting that the Hebrew women, hey, they're hardier than us, you know, than the Egyptians. So what they said, you know, was more of a joke than a lie. Thus Pharaoh was mocked and deceived. So these two women, cool thing is God blessed them. Did you catch that? God blessed them for what's doing right. And what's and doing right isn't always the popular thing. Because we have a whole world that's telling us a whole lot of stuff. This is the way we're trending. This is the way we're going. You better get on board. Even turn on the news today. Isn't it crazy? Well, they think this and they think that, and we're all on the same page. We don't want to offend anybody. And then you have those born again Christians. (laughs) You know, really? It's wrong to be pro life, it's wrong not to murder. It's wrong to want to love and to serve. It's not all about me and what I want. So back to Exodus 1. (laughs) Who was the first deliverer in Exodus? Isn't this pretty cool, guys? It wasn't Moses. Not a man. And it's interesting, it's not the new king or pharaoh actually his name wasn't even named who in the heck is this dude honestly i don't think oppressors even deserve to be named they don't deserve it no recognition you're a dork that's what we just should call them all dorks but two people are named guys and they're the ones who started the book of exodus for us they become heroes of the story and they're nobodies no royalty they're not rich they're not famous just two midwives that were brave and courageous brave and courageous brother and sister be brave be courageous and we're gonna have to be because the world as we know it is radically changing right before our eyes yes we are very blessed 
to have been born here in the West. We've enjoyed a lot of freedoms. But things are just getting crazy, aren't they? But I love it. As things get darker, do you guys know what light does? It shines brighter. Let's shine for Jesus. Let's be bold. Let's stand up. Let's speak up. Be courageous. Let your light shine. And speak that truth in love. Okay? Speak it in love. You see, they feared God. And they couldn't kill the babies because they feared God. There's a lot we can't do when we fear God. These two women said, no to Pharaoh, no to power, no to oppression, no to injustice, no to killing babies. And this is where courage begins, guys. And because they feared God, he provided families for them. So God rewarded them with the gift here of motherhood. I know the story doesn't always end with verse 21, or maybe it does, just in a different way. Maybe like adoption, foster care, being a nanny, being a babysitter. Mother. What does it mean? A woman who conceives and gives birth to or raises and nurtures a child. I like what Sidney J. Harris said. The commonest fallacy among women is simply having children makes them a mother, which is an absurd as believing that a piano makes you a musician. I know some women who have not conceived a child of their own, but who have been a mother. Every description of a mother to other children. I want to close in prayer and I don't do this often actually I never do this but I wrote a prayer out for us this morning because I really want us to take some time together as a church family and just pray into what's going on right in our backyard we are at a very pivotal time in our nation in regards to pro-life pro-choice things are going before the courts today and a lot of times, guys, we feel a little help, helpless, don't we? What, what can we do? I can be courageous. I can let people know where I stand when it comes to this issue. I can tell people what God said. But how is that really going to change anything? I want to get a show of hands. How many of you guys believe that prayer changes things? All right. I think this is something we need to be praying about as the church on a regular basis. So if you guys would bow your heads and pray with me this morning. Father, we're sorry that we're a rebellious people. Lord, we're rebelling against you and your word. And you told us clearly to choose life. And even within the church, there needs to be a repentance of passivity towards the great evil of abortion and the lack of not speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves. Please, in your great mercy, would you grant us repentance and the grace to stand up, to speak up, to tell people the truth and love. We lift up the many pro-life lawyers that are involved in many cases throughout our country today and all around the world. Please give them favor and wisdom. May we see major change 
in current abortion laws. We lift up the lawyers representing the pro-life side of the argument. Lord, would they have the ability, Lord, to turn hearts away from Roe? May the words they say and the arguments they present save lives of countless unborn babies. We ask you to move in the hearts of the Supreme Court justices that true justice would reign in our land. We believe your word, and we've read over and over how you've changed the hearts of the hardest leaders in Scripture. Changing the hearts of the Supreme Court justices is not beyond your power. Please hear our cry, Father, and save those justices that don't know you. We pray for the church at large to boldly rebuke and educate about abortion in love and that you give us opportunities to lovingly come alongside those who had an abortion and have been involved with abortions. So many today are ashamed, guilt-ridden, just destroyed by this sin. Help us to shine the light of your son, Jesus. They're the one they need. Help us to stand alongside them, supporting them and showing them that no matter what decisions they've made in the past, God, that you love them and that your grace is able to forgive them. And please, for those who are grieving over decisions, Lord, would you help them to see your love and your grace, that they will choose life to choose you moving forward. And we're asking this in your awesome name, Jesus, because we know that you are the one who is mighty to save. Amen? Amen. I wanted to, and I could say a whole lot more on this issue, but I do believe as Christ followers, as we address this issue, we need to do it Christ's way. We need to do it in truth. We need to do it in love. And we need to just simply take what God's word says about it. Because there is a lot of language, a lot of arguments around the whole issue of pro-choice and pro-life. At the end of the day, it's really simple. God tells us to choose life, period. It is that simple. So I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, engage in these conversations. Well, this is a political thing. It's not a political thing. This is a life thing. It's a life thing. It matters. Have those conversations. Be bold, but also be loving in it. And be sensitive. I've come along a lot, alongside a lot of ladies over the years who've had abortions. I've had a few where I was the first person they ever told they had an abortion because they had so much guilt. The sin had wrecked. They, had, they, they weren't told that when they went into the clinic to have the abortion, that it was going to ruin their lives. This ruined them. And you guys know me, and you know what I had to share with them. It's the hope of Jesus. Yeah, that was wrong. That was sin. Murder is not right. But there is a God in heaven who loves you. There's a God who can forgive you. He can make you whole. He has hope for you, a real hope. He is life, and we get to share. So I want to encourage you guys, be loving, being open, because there's a lot more people out there, gals, that have had abortions than we know. And even some guys, I know some guys have gone through it, their girlfriend or whatever. 
had the abortion. But God wants to use us. He wants us to speak into the lives of others. Because let me tell you what, what goes on in the Hill in D.C., 253 people, you know, we vote. (laughs) What they do, we can't really change a whole lot of that. We can vote. But what matters are the people right here in our own backyard. So love on your neighbors well. Speak up. Be brave.